This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Hello, everyone. This is episode 79 of the Travel Writing World podcast. Joining me today is David Seminara. His newest book, Mad Travelers, tells the story of William Bakeland, an alleged con artist who offered to help extreme travelers reach some of the world's most remote frontiers. Now, this book is much more than an expose on William. It offers insight into wanderlust and asks why some of us are so compelled to travel. In this episode, we also talk about writing footsteps pieces and how David revised and self-published essays he previously wrote for other outlets as a way to breathe new life into older work. That's coming up in the interview. But before we start the episode today, just a reminder to share the podcast with your friends on social media, leave a review on the Apple Podcast app or whichever podcasting app you use, or support the show with only a few dollars a month less than a cup of coffee, at travelwritingworld.com forward slash support. Lastly, to stay up to date with travel, nature, and place writing news, consider signing up for Genius Loci, my free monthly email roundup of news and links at jeremybassetti.com. A new roundup goes out on the first of the month. So now, here is Dave Seminara. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. Now, I wanted to talk with you about your newest book, Mad Travelers, which is the wonderful story of an alleged con artist named William Bakeland, I think it's pronounced, who, um, according to the allegations, swindled hundreds of thousands of dollars from unsuspecting travelers in the arrangement of like these far-flung trips uh, to check off their bucket lists. The, the book is, uh, though it's called Mad travelers in the plural, it does ask questions about uh, the reasons why we travel. So it's much more than just an, like an expose on this guy, but it's an investigation into wanderlust and adventure and you know the reasons why we travel. It's a, it's a, it's a good book. Um, but before, um, after we talk about that, I was also um, wondering if I could ask you um, a couple of other questions about your other books, um, which collect and expand stories you wrote for other publications as, as a journalist. Um, I think what you're doing there might give other writers some ideas about how to like breathe new life into some of their older work. But anyway, let's start. Mad Travelers. As I mentioned, wonderful story. <laughs> uh, an alleged con artist. Um, so I'm saying alleged here. Is, is, has it been confirmed that this guy is a con artist? Has he, has he been like tried and convicted or is it still? No, I think, you're, I think that you are uh, technically correct to use the term alleged okay. because he has not been convicted of anything in a court of law. However, um, you know, I did obviously review a lot of documents and such uh, from the different travelers who claim that he owes them hundreds of thousands of dollars. And there's some pretty compelling evidence that he owes uh, a number of the world's most traveled people uh, quite a large sum of money, though none of them have been able to uh, or have had the, you know, uh, time or patience to pursue him in the courts. Mm -hmm. Some have tried, but, you know, there, there are a couple of ongoing cases against him. 
but none have been adjudicated to date. So I think alleged is 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 a good term. Okay, let's be cautious here. I don't want somebody mm-hmm. to sue Travel Writing World. Uh, but, <laughs> but so before we talk about some of these um, allegations, can we can you give us a sense of um, who William was? Um, what what was his background? Who he was? Kind of who's this mysterious mm-hmm. figure? Yeah. Um, William, this mysterious figure came into my life about, um, seven years ago or so. And at the time, um, I was working on, uh, a, a project to, um, sell, um, essentially a documentary or a film series about the world's greatest travelers. And, um, I had, I had had a chance to sort of get into this world of elite travelers, extreme travelers, systematic travelers, whatever you'd like to call them. Some people call them country collectors as well, too. I thought I think that's somewhat of a dismissive term, but I use it at times. So I got to know some of the world's most traveled people. And um, we were going to do a, a, you know, a television series about them. It was sold to a production company. But and the production company tried to sell it to National Geographic and Discovery and some of the usual television suspects. And, and uh, the feedback that we got was that the world's most traveled people are too demographically boring. First of all, they're... Um, mostly white guys and they were older. They were much too old. I was told, aren't there any young, you know, jet setting travelers who could spice things up. So I sort of doubled back to these world's most traveled people. And I kept hearing the same name from all of them. They all said, William Bakeland. He is this young sort of aristocratic English billionaire with a B who has a, he inherited this tremendous fortune. And um, he uses that money to get to the weirdest and the most unusual islands and obscure places in the world. And they told us that this guy is, they told me that this guy, William, is a genius, that he's getting us to places. He's helping us get to places that we thought were completely inaccessible to mankind. And so William was a trailblazer. He was um, you know, sort of a, this groundbreaking character in the world of adventure travel. And all of the superlatives that I'd heard about him I just could not wait to meet him because I also thought this was going to salvage our um, our project. So he's this um, well-spoken, very sharp, very bright, uh, young, kind of good-looking man from from England, right? Um, and that yes, was part and of genius too. Yeah, and that was kind of part of his allure because many of, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. many of the um, kind of elite travelers were. They belong to an older demographic. So here's this kind of young upstart from seemingly nowhere uh, going on adventures with 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 all these guys. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. So he could have spent his money, um, you know, doing fun things. But instead, he was going on these sort of arduous adventure trips to these far flung places with these guys. And of course, they were paying for it, but they were under the impression that everybody was just kind of splitting it and that there was no profit involved, that William was just doing this uh, just for his own, essentially, curiosity, to satisfy his own curiosity, not as a profit-making business. Mm. So he would basically uh, speak with these elite travelers and say, hey, I have mm-hmm. some contacts. I can get a safe passage to this yeah. desirable location. Sure. Um, it's going to cost X amount of dollars per person. Do you want to buy in? Do you want to put a deposit down? And that's... Yes, in a way. And it was very exclusive, too. And so this world of um, elite travelers, um, it, they're friendly, these guys. They all know each other. There are some women, too, involved. But it's sort of a friendly competition. Mm-hmm. But it is sometimes a bit competitive, too. So William was very savvy in terms of sometimes playing people off of each other and inviting certain people on certain trips and others not on others. And he understood based upon the travel rankings. And for those of you um, who aren't familiar with these groups, a couple of the most popular ones, one is called Nomad Mania. Another one is called Most Traveled People. 
there are rankings of travelers based upon how many countries and territories and islands and such he visited. So he was very savvy in being like, okay, let's look at who is number nine on the list here. Where have they not been to? And how could I help them leapfrog over numbers eight, seven, or six, or things of this nature? And so when he really kicked this plan into overdrive, all happened on a, on a trip in, I believe it was 2016, maybe, or 2017. I'm forgetting my dates. But um, he and a number of these other top travelers of the world were on a, uh, a South Atlantic cruise in the South Atlantic Ocean trying to get to Bouvet Island, which is the world's most remote island. Don't mind Norway. No people live there. There's not a lot to see, but it's, it's incredibly difficult to get there because the seas in that part of the South Atlantic Ocean are so rough. Mm-hmm. Um, and a visit does not count in these travel clubs unless you actually step foot on the island. So just seeing it from a boat does not count. And so they went on this expedition together, a 30-day cruise. They got within spitting distance of Bouvet Island, William and the other characters, but they could not land because the seas were just too rough over a period of days. So on that cruise, William told everyone that he was going to find a way to get everyone or whoever wanted to back to this place. He was going to charter his own ship and have his own expedition where they would not be bound to the, um, you know, to the schedule of a commercial ship, that they would be able to sit and wait until the seas calmed enough so that they could actually land on this island. And also he was going to take them to all of these other islands on this grand circumnavigation of the Southern Oceans, which was going to be completely unprecedented. So William made a tremendous impression on people on that cruise. It's really sort of where he really made his splash in the world of adventure travel. Everyone was like, who in the hell is this guy? Because, um, you know, he was at the time, I think, 21, 22 years old. Everyone else on the ship, the average age was probably 60 because not a lot of people have, you know, the large amount of money. It was, I think, $15,000, this cruise. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of people have the money to go on this cruise, nor do they have time. Usually people who are of working age don't have time for a 30-day cruise to remote and obscure islands. So that's really sort of when it all started. Mm-hmm. This all begs the question uh, in my mind. Maybe you can uh, clarify it a little bit. So. He claims that he inherited billions of dollars from mm-hmm. his grandfather, his relatives, mm-hmm. who owners of some plastic kind of company, right? And so he made mm-hmm. claims to have all this kind of, uh, uh, I guess, trust fund money. Um, and yeah. but he's also alleged to have um, swindled people out of money. But yet here he is on a trip to Bubei Islands before having done, as we know any of the swindling or allegedly had done any of the swindling. So like how going, being on that first trip would have taken a lot of money and resources. Right. So like, right. Do you have any sense of, you know, how he was able to, to go on that trip? Was that a product you do? So, yes. So first of all, to take a step back, you know, William was extremely smart and very discreet. So he wasn't going around telling people I'm a billionaire. I inherited billions of dollars and such like that. And so what he did was he changed his name, first of all, you know, his real name was uh, Jesse Gordon, and he changed it to Bakeland. And Bakeland is an unusual name. It's not like Smith or Jones, right? So um, Bakeland, uh, the name comes from, or at least the most famous Bakeland, was Leo Bakeland, supposedly his grand, uh, great-grandfather, I believe it was. Leo Bakeland invented Bakelite, and he sort of was considered the father of the modern plastics industry. At one point, he was on you know, Time Magazine's list of one, most 100 influential people of the 20th century, something like that, right? So this is, he changed his name to Bacon, and it's an unusual name. And basically, word just traveled very quickly on this ship. Someone 
Now, I think that he, you know, he gave the impression that he was this aristocratic billionaire, but he didn't actually have to go around telling people, I am a billionaire. I believe what happened was one person sort of started spreading the gossip mm. and then people started Googling the Bakeland name and they sort of put two and two together and they added things up. Aha. Okay. Here's a 21 year old who seems to have, you know, extravagant resources. He speaks like an aristocrat. He claims his family owns these lands and so on and so forth. And it's sort of like the story wrote itself in a way. Interesting. Interesting. And so regarding the first trip and how did he have the money to do that? So by the time that first trip came around, I recall, I believe he was 21 or 22 years old, but actually he'd been running uh, extreme travel businesses under different names since he was 18 years old. So he had actually legitimately by this point made some profits organizing trips to very obscure places for a number of top travelers. And the interesting thing is that a number of people who were on that ship did not realize that he was the same person who had brokered previous obscure trips for them when he was only 18, 19 years old, operating using a different name and a different company name. Mm -hmm. So a number of people had booked trips with him when he was a teenager using a different name and they'd never even met him, never even spoken to him. They literally uh, just wired money to this company. He arranged the trips and they went on them and they were legitimate trips. So I think that the money you know spent on this Bay Island cruise, the 15K or whatever it was he spent was sort of like an investment. He knew that you know the world's top travelers were all going to be on this thing, dozens of them. Mm-hmm. And he'd have 30 days, 30 days with them at sea. And most of, and this is not like a carnival cruise where there's you know a lot of entertainment and stuff like that and lots of different ports to go on. So they had a tremendous amount of time at sea to really get to know each other. So it was an investment. Yeah, and, and there's also kind of this moral ambiguity here because he did also organize successful trips and so it wasn't like he was a, a, a crook you know a, a, yes you know as he's organizing successful trips and so he's getting a reputation of doing that but for whatever yeah. reason perhaps his defense is that you know you're putting a deposit down for something that's inherently risky anyway and if the trip falls through then the trip falls through Right. That is sort of his defense. And Mm -hmm. also, you're correct in saying that he organized a number of successful trips. And as I wrote in the book, I mean, he achieved sort of legend or rock star status in the extreme travel community because he was getting people to places that they thought were impossible to get to before. Like as just a very brief example, he found a way to get people to a place called Marion Island, which is an island that's five or six days um, by sea south of South Africa. (laughs) Almost no one had been there before other than members of the South African Navy. And so he, he found out that the South African Navy was going to be going there um, to service some like weather equipment that they had on the island and finagled the way to get a number of travelers on this boat with them. I mean, who could ever even think of things like this? Really, a lot of the, a lot of the stuff he did was completely ingenious. So he did, um, he did you know, execute a lot of really successful ships. And not only that, he was so knowledgeable about the world for a young man. This was the thing that impressed mm-hmm. a lot of people, his knowledge of geography and the world. Now, these are guys who are not easy to impress because <laughs> they've been everywhere. So you could tell them the name of some obscure island in the South Pacific, and not only had they heard of it, but they've been there, right? So if you're going to, he was not you know, some ordinary you know, con man off of the street who, if he wasn't doing you know, these travel trips, would have been selling you know, fake Rolexes on Canal Street in New York. He, he had a keen these were passions that he had. So even if, you know, a lot of the stuff about his backstory was untrue, the thing that was really true that I just explore this more in the book was his passion for travel. 
Um, and so I think that all of this started from William's perspective based upon his own wanderlust. And that's sort of why I chose this as the central story of my book, because the book started out just as a book about wanderlust and me wanting to understand my own wanderlust. And then the tale, as the tale of William over full, you know, unfolded over a period of years, I realized that it was really the ultimate tale of wanderlust, not only William's wanderlust, but also the wanderlust of these extreme travelers who, mm-hmm. um, who trusted him against their better judgment, that they wanted to get to these crazy places so badly that they were wiring someone they barely knew, or in some cases did not know at all, tens or sometimes maybe even a hundred thousand dollars. Right. And so I wanted to ask you about the psychology of, as you said, uh, country collect collecting, which is a pejorative term or elite travelers or kind of the psychology of, of wanderlust and the passion for, for, for travelers. And especially in the context of of your book, because your, your book, it tells this narrative, the story of, of William and, you know, the people who allege he took money from. Um, But in between those uh, narratives, you have kind of, uh, diversions or discussions on on wanderlust and um, you know the the need to to get away. So I was wondering if you could talk to talk to us a little bit about this, um, I guess, psychology of of wanderlust. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, this this whole book project started um, seven or eight years ago when National Geographic wrote a um, a cover story about the so called nomadic gene. And I read that and immediately I wanted to know, okay, do I have this gene or not? Because I've thought before about, we always wonder about why are some people content to stay home while other people really need to travel? And I always sometimes give this example that I have five brothers. And so there's six of us boys in the family and we all have varying degrees of wanderlust ranging from extreme, which would be me, to moderate and others to virtually none and some of my brothers. And so it's always sort of dawned upon me and maybe wonder, you know, why is it that some of us really feel this burning passion to explore and other people are content to just read a book or watch a movie or go on YouTube and they can satisfy their curiosity just watching a video about a place while other people need to get there. Mm -hmm. So this is sort of really the meat of the book of what I really explore all of the research on why do, why does men, why do some people need to travel or not? And I also, as you know, people who read the book will, will find out, I did end up taking a genetic test, um, to see whether I had the wanderlust gene and that really sort of the results of that test really sort of informs my thinking on on how, you know, whether this is really genetic or environmental, but it's a super interesting discussion. And it's not something that has a really neat conclusion. I have to tell you this question of, you know, is wanderlust genetic or not? Because, you know, as I learned a lot more about genetics in this project, genes are a very complicated picture. So even though you can get a test, you can get a genetic test to see if you have this specific gene. Um, it's not, it's not, pass fail as far as i'm concerned it's very much a gray picture and i think that you know we inherit um we all inherit you know a certain percentage of our traits i think that what the research i've seen is that we inherit something like 60 percent of our personality traits are heritable they're things that we've inherited but there is that other 40 percent there um so it's a complex picture and i think it's 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 super fascinating Mm-hmm. The, the narrative of William, William also doesn't have a neat conclusion. So it's a, kind of an interesting book in, in that respect. Um, but you went in, in this book, you went, you traveled to the United Kingdom in hopes of tracking mm-hmm. down William. Um, and this is mm-hmm. something that you, you've done at, at greater length in your other book, uh, Footsteps of Federer, where you traveled mm-hmm. to Switzerland in hopes to track the man down. Um, but you've also written other footstep stories uh, on stars like mm-hmm. Kurt Cobain and 
Pablo Escobar and, and Justin Bieber, <laughs> to, to name a few. Yep. But well, what, what do you find so fascinating about writing footsteps pieces? Yeah. So, I mean, I just actually wrote one, too. I just um, put out a, um, a revised and updated uh, edition of, um, of my travel collection about my stories from around North and South America, which is called Breakfast with Polygamous Dispatches from the Margins of the Americas. I just wrote um, a footstep uh, story about Charles Darwin. So this past summer, for example, we were in the Galapagos. And um, I didn't have a, you know, an intention to set out and write a footsteps of Charles Darwin's story. But this is one of the great things that I love about travel is the ability to, to stumble across or find out about people that you didn't know much about before. Of course, you know, people are famous, but you don't really feel compelled to really learn about that person's life until you travel to the destination to become more curious. So when you go to the Galapagos, of course, everybody's heard of Charles Darwin. They know about the theory of evolution, but the man had such an incredibly interesting life. And when you go there and you walk in that person's footsteps, then suddenly become much more interested in finding out many more details about it. And I think that by traveling in someone's footsteps, you can so much better understand that person. Um, and especially, for example, like you mentioned, Kurt Cobain, like, um, you know, I think especially for an East Coast person like myself, I, East Coast, but I grew up in the Great Lakes region. I grew up in Buffalo. And um, what do I know about, you know, Washington State? Really not very much before I traveled out there. And especially, you know, when we think about Washington State as sort of people, you know, if you don't grew up in the Pacific Northwest, you think of Seattle, you think of Portland, you think of the coastal places. And so I didn't know anything about Kurt Cobain and really the part of Washington State that he grew up in until I really traveled there. And really understood that, wow, this is, you know, this is not Seattle. This is nothing at all like Seattle. These are areas where, you know, the people derisively, you know, refer to themselves as like, you know, Pacific Northwest rednecks. These are poor places. These are places with a lot of, surprisingly, a lot of crime and such. I mean, I had no idea. I mean, Kurt Cobain grew up in a neighborhood that's um, derisively nicknamed Felony Flats. Um, and you know, I got, a, I did a ride around with the mayor of the town, the mayor of Aberdeen, Washington. And, um, we, we passed through the neighborhood and he said, this neighborhood is called felony flats and so on and so forth. And I said, oh, is it called that? Because there used to be a lot of criminals living in this neighborhood. And he looked at me and he gave me like a look like, are you nuts? And he said, used to be a lot of criminals living in this neighborhood. He said, there still are a lot of criminals living in this neighborhood. I said, mm -hmm. wow. And this is the mayor of the city. <laughs> Who is speaking like that? So I thought, wow. And then to, to see how many different residences Kurt lived in, for example. I mean, the kid was being passed around from one house and one neighbor and one schoolmate's father and daughter to the next. I mean, there must have been 15 different houses. So just like the hunt or the quest to find all of the different houses that Kurt lived at over his life, that right there told a story, you know, that he had no stability. And mm -hmm. so all of that really informed and gave me a better appreciation for the man's music. That's just one example. But, um, you know, as, as you pointed out, I've written a lot of different footstep stories and I always come away with a deeper, um, maybe appreciation is the wrong word for, for, for that. Because as you mentioned, I did do one of a Pablo Escobar and I'm not going to claim that I thought Pablo Escobar was a wonderful person after I took his tour, but I, I certainly did have a better um, understanding of who he was and why some of his legacy was, you know, controversial, but why he still has some, some fans and supporters, mm -hmm. um, in Colombia as well too. So yeah, I love, I'm sort of addicted to footsteps trips and even if no one would publish them or I wouldn't have an opportunity to write about them, I would still take them. Yeah. They offer a window or a reference point, so to speak for, for travels and, uh, and wanderings, but 
I'm glad that you yeah. brought up um, breakfast with polygamists. Um, and you have mm-hmm. this one is subtitled uh, Dispatches from the Margins of the Americas. And you have another mm-hmm. book, and, and the title is blanking on me, but that subtitle yeah, is. It's, Go yeah, it also involves breakfast. Both of my first two books involve breakfast, which is my favorite meal of the day. <laughs> um, the first book is called Bed, Breakfast, and Drunken Threats. Okay. Uh, dispatches from the margins of Europe. So the first book is a story about collections from peculiar places in, in all around Europe, peculiar corners of Europe. And the second book is a collection of stories from unusual places in the Americas. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and I'm also glad that you mentioned the Darwin, uh, the, the, the fact that you've been updating and writing or including the Darwin mm-hmm. piece in the new edition of yes. this book. Um, because what you're doing here, I find um, interesting. And and let, let me know if I'm characterizing this correctly, but these are um, essays, in, largely essays that you wrote for other publications in the past and that mm-hmm. you've edited them and you've updated them. You've be- beefed them up, so to speak, um, and then you've kind of like repackaged them yourself and, and, and you, you now sell them basically online on Amazon. You can find it everywhere. Is, is that a fair assessment? Uh, it's, it's mostly fair, except that the story and the books, I would say, are about two thirds. Um, published previously published in some form and about one third or a quarter previously unpublished like so for example the new um mm-hmm. story about charles following in the footsteps of charles darwin that is previously unpublished um and the reason for some of those is because of the length of stories and you know how short people's attention spans are now that is an eleven thousand word story <laughs> and uh, i didn't even really almost try finding someone to publish that because in, in these days there aren't a lot of uh, publications around that want to publish you know 10 12 thousand word stories but they're great for a book Right. But what interests me about this is, I mean, uh, you put these together well before the pandemic. Um, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, but during the pandemic, I was thinking about how this might be a good way for travel journalists, travel writers to collect some of their writing in one place and kind of breathe new, breathe new life into and perhaps generate income from some of the older mm-hmm. um, uh, work. And I, just thinking, I was thinking about this before as um, kind of perhaps a, 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 a interesting possibility and then here you are you've been doing uh this um very thing so what is like what is your process like um Mm -hmm. like pulling pulling together these these essays do you have kind of a a theme in mind i know it's like dispatches from the 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 margins of x and that's kind of a broad topic Mm -hmm. but do you try to um collate theme uh older essays and 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 new essays into like a broader theme or how does that process work for you yeah and so a couple of things for for starters just you know for any other writers who are considering this kind of thing uh for me it was not a money-making scheme and Mm -hmm. i have not made you know a tremendous amount of money off of it but what i do is i price these books um at least the you know the kindle edition of them at 99 cents because what i want to do is to discover new audiences who i hope will um, you know, we'll see that book. Oh, 99 cents. Let's try that. And then like it. And then, you know, hopefully purchase some of my other books and be interested in sort of following my work. So it's definitely not a money-making scheme for me. It's just a, a way to sort of gain sort of greater visibility. And as you say, breathe new life into older works. Um, so for starters, in terms of like the way that I approached all of this was, there's a lot of, you know, stories of the stories that were previously published. Many of them, I always, you know, felt bad about how much stuff was left on the cutting floor. You know, you're always under these word count constraints. Um, you know, the Kurt Cobain story is a great example of that. That was published in the New York Times travel section, I don't know, maybe seven, eight, nine years ago. And I think I might have gotten 
2,200 words out of them or 2,300 words, which is a pretty good sized piece. But still, I had so much great stuff that I couldn't include in that. And so I went, you know, wanted to go back and like, okay, here's the really juicy bits that unfortunately um, were left out. And sometimes it's because of space, but other times it's controversial stuff that an editor wants out because it's too controversial. They might get sued or whatever. Like, so for example, in the Kurt Cobain piece that's in my Breakfast with Polygamist, um, I'll just tell you. So for example, I tracked down um, one of Kurt's uncles who lives in a trailer park, um, you know, outside of Aberdeen and has no money and told me so much about the family. And he is sort of believed a lot of different conspiracy theories that Kurt was, um, didn't commit suicide, but Kurt was actually murdered. And that Courtney Love was the person who, um, who paid for it, who paid for the, you know, paid for the hit. And so I thought, wow, this is, you know, kind of a crazy out there theory, but this is, you know, literally the uncle of Kurt Cobain who's throwing it out there. Um, So if anyone's going to get sued for it, I guess it would be him. Right. So little bits, little juicy things like that, which they thought, oh, we better not put that in. But is it interesting for the reader? You better believe it is. Stuff Mm -hmm. like that is in there. So and then so that's, you know, part of the books is, is that. But then the other part are the unpublished stories which either they couldn't be, they weren't published because either the story was too long or because it wasn't commercial enough or whatever. So there's, you know, as I said, maybe a quarter to a third of these books are, um, are stories that were never published anywhere before and that hadn't found homes. And a lot of them, I think, are, you know, are, are the stories, interestingly, that have gotten the, the best feedback about. And I'll give just one example of that. From the Breakfast with Polygamous book, um, I lived in Bend, Oregon for almost six years. And I wrote a story called A Hate Letter to Bend, Oregon, all about essentially all of the things that went disastrously wrong in my life during the six years that I lived in this supposedly picturesque and idyllic town. And that is by far, that is one of the stories that I have received more feedback about than any other story that I've written, I think, in my life. And yet no one, you know, I pitched that story to, I don't know how many different publications now said, eh, thanks, but no thanks. But clearly, um, it was such a deeply personal story. It really resonated with a lot of people. And a lot of people thought it was also really even pretty hilarious, even though I described a lot of series of catastrophic health failures and other things that went wrong for me when I, when I lived there. So I like that about this format is that you can put things in there that you know readers will like, but for, for whatever reason, didn't make it into print. Right. It's kind of like the director director's cut of essays right? you have here. That, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, um, so practically, um, if, if you could just give us some insight here. So did you, um, kind of like hire cover designers and formatters and Mm -hmm. do all this stuff yourself and buy an ISBN and kind of slap it all together and put it on the various, Mm -hmm. uh, websites? Yeah. So I have a wonderful, um, I hope you don't mind me mentioning his name. Chad Lowe is the person that I've used to design uh, my covers. And, um, you know, he's very reasonable and he's a wonderful person. I just stumbled across him, but now I, I absolutely swear by him. So if there's any writers out there who are looking for a cover illustrator who's affordable and excellent, contact me and I'll give you Chad's contact information. But yes, yeah, so I started with Chad from the very first book and I've stuck with him. And in fact, what I did even for the two published books that I have, um, sorry, not the books that are not self-published that were published by um, Post Hill Press and distributed by Simon & Schuster, even for those, believe it or not, so when I was at the point of trying to find a publisher for those two books, what I did was I packaged them up um, as, as self-published books on Amazon. Here's another tip for, for writers. I mean, it worked for me at least. And rather than just sending out 
you know, manuscripts or sending out proposals. What I did was I actually went onto the Amazon KDP platform. Probably shouldn't admit this. I don't know whether you're supposed to do this or not, but I actually had books printed up because you can, you don't have to actually self-publish books there. You can go in, you can put your manuscript out there and then you can order, um, you know, you can order proof copies of it for like three, $4 each. That's probably the cheapest way. If you want like a bound copy of something that you're not sure whether you want to publish or not, you'd like to maybe send out to you know literary agents or small publishers. This is what I did. And in fact, they liked Chad Lowe's covers so much that they said, we want to buy those. We, we actually don't want to you know, create even other ones. We love the covers that he came up with. So he's, Chad Lowe's done all four of my covers. Um, as far as the editing, yes, for the two self-published books, I did hire um, copy editors. And you know, as far as formatting and stuff like that, I didn't really consider that to be rocket science. I did not hire anybody to format them. I found that easy enough to just do it on myself on the platform. And also, you know, Amazon KDP has a customer support line. And actually, the people are very good. If you have, you know, any technical issues or whatever, I found them to be very easy to work with. Mm. So, so as part of your pitch package to the publisher, you would actually um, get a book designed, formatted, formatted, edited, print up yep. some author or proof copies and send that with your proposal and all the other documents to uh, along with your correct pitch. although wow. although with those two books i did not actually pay for someone to edit them i just edited them, those two myself okay okay because i wasn't planning on having those be self-published so i figured you know they'll if they like the book they're going to get an editor so i didn't bother hiring a copy editor for those two yeah. but i did for the two self-published oh gosh that's interesting. But yeah that's, that's what i did yeah that sounds like a good idea interesting uh, approach for sure um, we're butting up at the end of our time, and I just wanted to close here with a final question. Um, and I wanted to ask you if you could uh, recommend any travel books or any um, kind of books that inform you and your work. Well, the, the, first of all, my you know my favorite travel writer is Paul Theroux, and I think uh-huh. for those of us in the genre, it's not that name isn't going to be unfamiliar to anybody really. Right. But I love almost every book that he's. Um, written. And I find that even revisiting those books is helpful to me, even as a writer looking at um, books many years again later, like, for example, like The Kingdom by the Sea, I think I first read when I was in college, which was in the 90s. And last year, I read that book again, and I think I appreciate it even more. So I mean, I would, I would, for aspiring writers, especially young writers, I would study his work very closely. I think another, there's so many travel writers that I like, but another one who I think is somewhat underrated, and he isn't writing travel books anymore. But um, uh, Jeffrey Taylor, uh, who writes a lot for The Atlantic and who's based in Russia. Um, I really love his books, too, because um, he's a really good writer. And he's also sort of a brave person who took some very bold and crazy trips. Like he wrote one book called Facing the Congo, I believe is the title of it, where he you know, went down the Congo River in a pirogue boat. And I think with him, what really is impressive to me is that, you know, we have a lot of people who there are some people who are like crazy, great, amazing adventure travelers, and they're very brave or they're reckless or foolhardy or whatever, but they're not very good writers. I've read a lot of books like that too, where I like the book, but it's not because of the quality of the writing. It's just because the person took such an interesting and daring trip. And then you have other people who are amazing writers, but they're really not very good travelers or they go to boring places. Jeffrey and his books, and I think he wrote um, about four of them, as I recall. There's one great book about Russia, one great book about the Congo, one great one about Morocco, and I think maybe one other one. They're all really good books. I I recommend his work highly as well. Yeah, he had, I think, a Burma book. And uh, Burma? Yeah, I think he has one on Bur- Burma and one on, yeah, the Kasbah um, book. Yeah, about Morocco. But good. Uh, definitely, I'll check some of those. I haven't read all of his work, but I'll check some of those out. And 
Look, Dave, thank you so much for your time and thanks for coming on, thank you. on the podcast. Thank you very much. You can find the episode show notes and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com support.